This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Hey, if you've got a Romans journaling Bible, why don't you hold it up for me so I can see who's got one. Yes, we're going to revive the ancient task of note-taking. Believe it or not, people used to actually use pen and paper and take notes during sermons. I feel like the iPhone killed that. And I don't know if you guys are actually Instagramming, tweeting, or taking notes on your phone, because I can just see you staring at your phone. But if you do this, I will know you're engaged, and I'll know that uh, you've, you've got a record of what God said on Sunday. You can take it to GC and share it. And so uh, we're really excited about these resources. So if you haven't got one, uh, you can go now, because this intro is like the longest sermon intro in the world. You're going to miss anything. They're, they're at the back. You can go get one for 10 bucks. But can, if you've got a Bible, if you've got your, your journaling Bible, can I just get you to hold it up in the air right now? Hold it up. I want them up in the air. This is, I realize everyone's too cool to put your hands up in church, but let's just get past our own you know, self-centeredness. Because there's something really important about this book here. We don't believe this is just a book. We believe this is the Word of God and that He speaks to us through it. And so the reason I want us to hold this up is because what we're doing right now physically is what we're about to do spiritually as I preach. We don't believe we sit above this word. We believe we sit underneath it, that this is authoritative, that Jesus rules this church as his word is proclaimed. So we refuse to believe the lie here at Anchor that we are wiser than God, and we submit ourselves to the authority of the Scripture. So I'm going to pray for us. Let's hold our words up. Thank you for those of you holding up nice and high. Come on, get your Bibles up in the air, and I want to pray for us as we prepare our hearts that God would speak right now. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you're a God who is not silent, but that you speak. And we ask now that we would come and sit humbly under your word. God, we know that in a world that has messages that scream at us every day, we need nothing more right now than to hear your voice. And so, God, we pray that you would help us still our hearts. We pray that we would come trembling at your word now. And we ask as we embark on this epic journey through Romans that you would speak to us and breathe life to your church. Help us meet you in the words of the scriptures this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would transform our hearts and our thinking and our lives. God, we're expectant this morning. We pray that you would speak and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Uh, This morning, we're also going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So on your seat, you will see uh, one of these little containers. And we recognize that the last time we did this, there were a lot of complaints about the wastage that occurred because of these, the amount of plastic it takes to contain this tiny little juice and this tiny little bit of uh, bread wafer. But um, we did buy thousands of these things, so it would be even more wasteful if we just threw them all in the bin and didn't use them. So look, we're going to use them, but we're also going to recycle the soft plastic uh, which we can't do here in the in the recycling bins of factory. But there is a cardboard box up the back, and on your way out, you could. We would love it if you would put these in there to help us reduce waste and care about our environment. And that's a good thing. So thank you for caring, anchor about God's beautiful creation. We're gonna ha- we're gonna do that this morning. So uh, please hold on to these. Don't eat these during the sermon because we're, we're we're gonna do something with this at the end as an expression of our unity in Christ. Well, Sam mentioned uh, a moment ago that. The series um, design and the idea behind the anatomy of grace was kind of inspired by this Japanese um, 
artwork called kintsugi. And uh, the, the process is that when a pottery item, say a, a cup or a bowl or a vase is broken, it will be repaired using a lacquer or a glue that has gold dust or silver dust or platinum dust mixed in it. And as that sets, you will see the breakages quite clearly. In fact, it's a feature of the artwork. And we felt that that idea was quite fitting for this series for a number of reasons. The first is that part of Paul's aim in the book of Romans is he wants to unite a church that is fractured and broken and where there's tension. And so we feel that that image there of the, the cup being put back together is a beautiful picture of what the aim of Romans is about, or at least part of it, that, that the church is united, that the, the, the fracture that exists in this Roman church is brought back together. We also think that that image is, is a beautiful picture of what God does in our lives. It's every single person has been broken by our sin, our rejection of God's good rule in our lives. And uh, Jesus doesn't simply just discard us, but he puts us back together. He puts the brokenness of our lives back together. And, uh, and he actually makes us better than what we were. And so these vases, these vases, I sound like Alnado when I say that. I'm not American. These vases um, and these, these cups and these bowls, they're actually no longer used for the common meal, but they're actually beautiful pieces of artwork. And Paul describes us like that in Ephesians 2, chapter 10. He calls us his workmanship, his masterpieces, the Greek word poema, which is a piece of artwork, and we are his crowning artwork. And so there is this idea that, um, that is, God is doing something beautiful as he remakes us. Now, there is also a clear um, contradiction in this image in that Jesus never celebrates and highlights our sin and our brokenness, right? That's not a part of what he does. Now, yes, that's a part of our story. And so there's this contrast that also happens with this artwork, Kinsagu, which um, is kind of contradictory to the message of Jesus. He actually makes us new creations, doesn't just make us better versions of ourselves, but entirely new. But, you know, every illustration has its flaws. And so, but we really love the beauty of that image. And we've called this series The Anatomy of Grace, because what Paul will do in the book of Romans with beautiful precision is he will pull apart and dissect the good news, the gospel. With detail, he's going to do that. This is the most detailed work of the gospel in the New Testament. And one of the methods that Paul will use to do that uh, throughout this book of, of dissecting the gospel, he will use this method of arguing against a hypothetical criti critic, like a, a hypothetical hater, a hy hypothetical naysayer. And he will raise an argument and then raise an objection to that argument and then answer the objection. And he does that particularly throughout Romans 1 to 7, 1 to 8. And that's a feature that you're going to see as we walk our way through Romans. But that's part of Paul's way of pulling these concepts and these arguments apart and wrestling with them so that we can go deep and understand with great detail the good news of Jesus. Well, we've seen from chapter 1, verse 1, haven't we, that Paul is the author of this letter. Verse 1, it says there, that's the preface. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, 
a servant or a slave is a better translation there, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wasn't always Paul. Paul was Saul of Tarsus before he was Paul. And before he became the apostle to the Gentiles, he was actually a Pharisee who was breathing out murderous threats against the church. He made it his personal vendetta to pursue and kill as many Christians as he could to try and shut down this new Jesus movement and end the church. And on one such journey, Paul was heading towards Damascus and Jesus met him on the road to Damascus in a blinding light and completely and radically changed his life. He gave him a new name, he gave him a new identity, and he gave him a new purpose. And part of that purpose purpose was to take the good news to the Gentiles, to the people outside of the ethnic people of God, the Jews. He was appointed the apostle to the Gentiles. And in that moment in Acts 9, Paul is both saved and then commissioned and sent on mission. And so Paul is the author of this letter. And his life for me is almost an example of the the message that he preaches in the book of Romans, that God takes people who are far from him, who are living lives that are contrary to him, who are murdering his people and uh, breathing out murderous threats against the church, and he saves them and rescues them. He showers his love upon them, and he calls us to participate with him in his work. And so Paul is a walking, breathing, living, talking example of the message that he gives us in the book of Romans. And if we're honest, that's our story as well, that Jesus would pursue wayward rebels and draw them into his family. And so Paul is the author of this letter, and he writes his audiences to the church in Rome, to those who are loved by God and called to be saints, he says there in verse 7. And he writes this letter to Roman Christians in the city of Rome, which is at the very center of, at that time, the most powerful, prominent, important city. At the heart of the Roman Empire was the city of Rome with all its pomp and ceremony and glory and power and influence and fame and all of the ideologies that came with it that were completely contrary to the message that Paul preaches. And so he writes this letter to the saints, to those who are loved by God. And his purpose, as he writes is twofold. The first I've already mentioned is that he wants to bring unity to a fractured church. In uh, AD 49, Emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews out of Rome, including the Jesus-following Jews. He kicked them all out of Rome because of some disagreement over Crestus, which is a misspelling of the word Christos, Christ. And so there was this this um, disagreement that arose amongst the Jewish people over this Jewish cult called Christianity, and in order to deal with it, Claudius kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, kicked them out, and barred access to Rome for five years. And as the Jews, including the the Jesus-following Jews, came back to Rome, they rejoined their church, which looked like a very different church five years down the track to what it was when they left. It began to take a real Gentile flavor. When you imagine for a second the Lord Mayor of Sydney, Clover Moore, kicked out everyone from Sydney 
other than South Africans. Imagine that. Imagine everyone just got expelled and the only people that were left was, were South Africans and 95% of them all lived in St. Arves because that's where the South... Could you imagine what church would look like if there were just South Africans left? It, was just, it would be me and, uh, and Keith and Bontler and uh, Frankie and Courtney. Who are, where are my people at? Callan. Any other people here from South Africa? Imagine what church would look like if it was just us. We'd be having Breifles and Borvos and Biltong, and we'd be like saying Lekka and uh, Halzitz, and at the end of our prayers we'd say Amen, because uh, that's what church would look like. And you guys came back five years later, it would be a very different church to what it looked like when you left. And that is the experience of these Jewish Jesus followers. As they come back to their church, it looks very different from what it was when they left. And all these tensions arise, particularly tensions about the law and the position of Christians towards the law. And so Paul's purpose is to unpack the gospel so that they would get it and that the gospel would begin to unite these people instead of all of these secondary issues dividing them. That's the first purpose that Paul writes. The second is Paul's aim as the apostle to the Gentiles, is to continue to take the good news to the ends of the earth. And part of his hope is that he would get to Spain with the good news, and he wants to use Rome as his HQ, as his launch pad, to take the good news to Spain. And in order to do that, he needs a healthy church base. Only healthy churches are involved in the mission of God and the sending of missionaries. And and Paul wants to ensure that this church gets the good news, gets the gospel, has a solid grasp on theology. And so that's why this letter to Romans is so deep and so rich and so detailed because Paul has a lot to say to this church because he wants to use them so that he can be sent on mission. And so that's it. That's Paul, our author. That's the Roman Christians, our audience. And that is his purpose in writing this book. Now, as we embark on this journey through Romans, I'm kind of nervous because the significance of this is hard to overstate, if I'm honest with you. Uh, there are people who have preached through the book of Romans with great length. In fact, uh, John Piper, a pastor from the U.S., took 18 years in his pastorate before he felt ready to preach on Romans. And I feel pressured by our staff to get to Romans so early because it's such an epic book. Or the great Welsh revival preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preached through Romans for 13 years and didn't even get to the end. And you can buy like the 20-volume set of his sermons from Romans 1 to 12, and I don't think he got to 13 to 16. But people take an epic amount of time to preach through this. Romans is kind of like the Lord of the Rings of the New Testament. And what I mean by that is it's long and it's dense and epic and we will probably do it in three parts for that reason. And so this is kind of like the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. And lots of people have said things about the book of Romans in the past. Dead, old, famous guys that you probably don't know who they are. But um, the Swiss theologian Frederick Goddard said that Romans is like the cathedral of the Christian faith. It's the biggest building at the center of the city that people come to. It's the cathedral of the Christian faith. Or well, The German uh, Reformation pastor Martin Luther said this, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy themselves with it every day as the daily bread of their soul. 
It's hard to overstate the significance of Romans. Now, that's not to say that this book is more anointed and God-breathed than any other book in the New Testament. It's as much God's Word as Ephesians or Colossians or any other New Testament letter or Old Testament book for that matter. But yet God has used this book so profoundly in history in many ways and in really significant moments. He has used this book to change the world. We think of uh, the early church father, Augustine, who was really just a gangster of the, um, the, the early church. And he still today, his influence still shapes theology and philosophy thousands of years later. But Augustine was living what could only be called the, the Sydney dream. He was partying and drinking lots of alcohol and having lots of sex. In fact, he is a self-described sex addict, pursuing partying, living proverbs, and feeling dissatisfied about it, he's walking through the garden one day and hears the children singing a ditty, take and read, take and read. And so he takes up the first book he finds. It just so happens to be a Bible, flicks open to Romans and reads the verse, not in drunkenness, not in orgies, and in that moment is convicted by the Holy Spirit and Jesus radically changes his life. And he devotes himself to the pursuit of study and theology. Or we think of... Uh, Martin Luther and the Reformation. Luther, who was a conflicted monk and tasked with lecturing on the book of Romans, and he's freaking out about it because there is this phrase in Romans that grates his soul, and the phrase is the righteousness of God, and it made him angry, and he didn't understand it until one day he was reading Romans 1.17, and his eyes were completely opened, and he says this, When the concept of justification by faith alone burst through my mind, Suddenly, the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. And the spark that uh, awakened Martin Luther ended up being the fire of the Protestant Reformation that spread through Europe and has changed the world. And it began with the book of Romans. Or we think about the story of John Wesley, who was a, a, a UK pastor and minister and uh, he, along with his brother, traveled to, to do some mission. It was very unsuccessful, but on their journey back, he was stirred and taken by the Moravian missionaries and their joy in Jesus. And so upon his return, he attended a Moravian church service, and one of the people at that gathering was reading, just happened to be reading Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans, his commentary on Romans. And in that moment, Wesley himself was awoken, and he says this, he says, in that moment, moment, what does he say? He says this, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation. And Wesley, along with his brother Charles and George Whitfield, are at the heart of the evangelical revival as the good news spreads throughout Europe and across to America. And the, the current um, Archbishop of the Church of England at the time, Archbishop Davidson, said that the Wesley brothers... And their impact was this, that they changed the outlook and character of an entire nation. And it all started with the book of Romans. It's hard to overestimate the significance of this book. God has used Romans literally to change the world. And our hope as we embark on this journey through Romans is that God would change our church, that he would change our lives. And I believe he will do so if we would lean in. If there would 
we would be prepared to go deep, to read Romans 1 to 7 multiple times, to be here for the sermon series, to get to GC, to journal, to read through the reading plan and lean in and believe that God wants to do something profound and powerful as we unpack this grand edifice, this masterpiece of theology. That's our hope. That's what we're dreaming for our church as we walk through this series. Our hope is that you would both know and experience the gospel. That as we dig through dense, deep theology, that, that you would grow in your understanding of the gospel. But not, that's not good enough in and of itself. We don't just want you to fill your head with knowledge. We actually want you to experience the gospel. It's the difference between knowing in your head intellectually what honey tastes like and actually having honey burst with flavor across your taste buds. We want you to know and we want you to experience the gospel. And so having said all of that lengthy, lengthy introduction, I actually just want to pause again and pray that God would begin a work of revival in our church and in our hearts. So would you join me as I pray? I'm going to kneel and ask that God would, would work profoundly through us. So let's pray together. Father God, we, we come before you now in your word and we know that you have worked so powerfully in the past through this book of Romans. And God, we want to ask, would you please do it again? In our church, in our hearts, in our gospel communities, would you, would you give us a deep sense of clarity about what this message is. God, would you open our eyes to the richness, to the depths of this book. And Father God, we, would, we pray that you would stir in our hearts and in our church an awakening to the gospel. We desperately need it, God. And so we come, Father, expectant and hungry, and we plead with you to work please. And we prayed in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, as Paul outlines his credentials in the first few verses here in Romans, he does so with much greater depth and length than he does in other books. And the reason he does that is because he's never actually met the people of this church. Paul didn't plant this church, unlike a number of other churches that he writes letters to. And so he, he lists out his credentials as an apostle, that Jesus has appointed me as an apostle. I am a herald. I come with the full authority of King Jesus to tell you what this good news is. And as he does that, he begins to give us a bit of an outline and overview of the message that he's going to unpack for the next 12 chapters of Romans. And without having time to do that in great depth, I want to give you five things that Paul teaches us that we learn about his good news message, his gospel here. Thursday night was six things at, at team night, and this morning you get five things from the gospel, five things that we learn about the gospel here in, in chapter 1, verse 1 to 7. The first is this. Paul's gospel is good news, not good advice. It's good news, not good advice. Paul says there in verse 1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. For the gospel. What does that word mean? 
It seems at the moment it is totally cool within the Christian world to just put the word gospel in front of every other Christian word that you can think of and somehow sanctify that word. We're a gospel-centered church. We're a gospel-preaching church. We believe in gospel optimism and gospel confidence and gospel communities and gospel, gospel, gospel. But what does that word mean? We can use it all the time, but what does it actually mean? Well, the word actually is not all that religious. In fact, in the first century, the word gospel simply meant an announcement, good news. And so the emperor might share gospel. He might send a a messenger, a herald, to declare some gospel to the city. And Paul uses this word. The writers of the New Testament use this word to talk about the message of Jesus. This is historic earth-shatteringly good news. And it's a pronouncement, and it's a message and an announcement. Paul's good news is this. It's what he will unpack for us with great detail, particularly from chapter 1 to chapter 3, the end of chapter 3. The good news is this, that even though we have willfully rejected God, that we have turned our backs on His good and rightful rule. And instead of worshipping the Creator, we have chosen to worship the creation. That even though we have fallen horribly short of God's standard of perfection, that even though we're incapable of fixing the mess that we have caused in our life and in this world, that God has stepped into the brokenness in the person of His Son, that Jesus, to use Paul's one of his favorite terms, justifies us. He makes us right with God. He makes us righteous and gifts us his perfect obedience in his atoning death on the cross that he would die as a substitute in our place. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Paul preaches. And that message is not good advice. That's not chin up, try harder. God has a wonderful plan for your life, even though that's true. It's not good advice. And it's not good works. This is not a checklist of things that we tick off in order to earn the approval of God. This is good news that God has done it all for us. This is good news, earth-shatteringly good news. And yes, it does produce a better you. And yes, it does lead to obedience. And yes, it means that we do things. But all of those things are the fruit of the outworking of this and not the cause. This is good news not good advice. The second thing that Paul uh, unpacks that we learn about this gospel here is that this good news is divine revelation and not human invention. Have a look at what he says in verse 2. Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle of God, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news here is not human invention. Paul didn't make this up. This is not some early first century Pharisees' human speculation on how we live a good life. Right? This is not like the first century version of a self-help book. This is divine revelation. This is God's story that he's been telling since Genesis chapter 1. And the good news is not a novelty in that regard. This is what God has been doing, what he has planned and purposed from the very beginning. We get a glimpse of that in Genesis chapter 3 in what is called the Proto-Euangelion, the first glimpse of the good news. As God promises that one of Eve's 
offspring will crush the serpent's head. We get further glimpses and glimmers of this as we read through the Old Testament. We come to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and we see the promise that God gives to David. He says, I will put one on your throne. A king will sit on your throne forever. This good news has been promised from the very beginning. It is not human invention. This is divine revelation. Jesus does not appear in a vacuum. He appears on a wave of historical and scriptural prophecies and predictions and promises. Paul didn't make this up. If you're not a believer here, you need to know that this book is not speculation, that this is the word of God to us, that it comes in a context. It is written by real people. Paul orated this book to a scribe called Tertius, who wrote it down. And then a woman named Phoebe, a wealthy woman, a deacon in the church, delivered this letter to the city of Rome, which is a real place you can still visit, believe it or not. And ancient ruins that Paul mentions are still there. This is a real historical letter that was written, but inspired by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to us. This is not human invention And because that is true, that means two things for us. The first thing it means is that we don't get to change this. This is not our message to mess with and fiddle with and tweak and update. This is God's story. And that's his warning to the Galatian church. There is one gospel. Don't believe any other gospel because there is one good news message that saves you. If we think of the illustration of a restaurant, God is the chef. He is the one who is cooking and preparing the meal. And we are the waiters and waitresses. All that God asks us to do is take the meal from the bay and deliver it to the table without spilling it and messing it up. He is the one. Or to use a more Aussie analogy, we're posties, right? We're we're postmen and women. We don't write the mail. We simply have the task of delivering the mail to the specified address. We don't get to change this. Message. We deliver a timeless message with timely methods. The second thing it means is that I think we can have confidence in this. If this is something that God has been promising and predicting and prophesying about for millennia, that has been fulfilled in Jesus, it means that we can have confidence that God fulfills His promise, that this gospel is powerful, that as God has determined that it will go to the ends of the earth, that Jesus will build His church, that people will hear and respond. We can have confidence in this because this is God's message and not ours. So this is good news, not good advice. This is divine revelation, not human invention. And thirdly, this is about Jesus not about you. Have a look at what he says in verse 3. So Paul set apart for the gospel that's promised beforehand and it's concerning his son who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What a mouthful of a sentence. And I've got four minutes left on the clock. Um, The good news is about the historical Jesus. And he comes and he is able to say, I'm on the family tree of King David. Like I'm the one who was promised in 2 Samuel 7. My great, 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 great granddaddy is King David. And I'm here. I'm the one who was promised about. I'm the Messiah. Jesus is in the family tree. And it says there that he is the Son of God, declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection. 
Now, our rough hermeneutic, the way that we understand and interpret the Bible, is that Jesus is the hero of every single page, of every single story, of every single book of the Bible. It's about Him. It's about Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross, who rose again, who has ascended to the Father's right hand, who is reigning and ruling now. It's about Jesus. And too often the church makes the message of the good news about us, about our self-fulfillment, about our dreams, and about us achieving our potential. Now, all of those things are true, but they are so far secondary to it being about Jesus. It's about Him. He is the hero of this story. So number three, this is about Jesus and not about you. Number four, this produces the obedience of faith and not loose living. This produces the obedience of faith and not loose living. Have a look at what he says there in verse five. So it's about Jesus, promised in the Old Testament. This is about Jesus, verse four. Uh, verse five, sorry. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of Faith. Now that is a strange phrase for Paul to use, given that Romans is supposed to be the book that unpacks the doctrine of justification by faith alone more than any other book in the New Testament. So what does Paul mean by the obedience of faith? And we, we can unpack that more, but this, this term is kind of like the bookends of Romans. It, it turns up here in Paul's prologue and it turns up in the end of the doxology at the end of Romans chapter 16. The obedience of faith. And what it is, is obedience to Jesus that both consists of faith and springs from faith. It both consists of faith and springs from faith. It's, it's obeying the call of Jesus to believe in his good news message that then produces a life of obedience in us. That's what he means by this phrase. You see, when we truly get what God has done for us, how can we not offer him our whole lives in response? When we get how good this good news is, it ought to produce a life of increasing holiness and Christ-likeness and obedience. That's what the Spirit does as he shapes us, as he forms us into Christ-likeness. This good news message does not produce cheap grace, does not produce a life that sits loose with the commands of God. It produces a life of ever-increasing godliness, Christ-likeness, and Jesus-centered character. So fourthly, this produces the obedience of faith and not loose living. And finally, this is all about God's glory amongst the nations. Final verse there, verse 5, at the end of it, it says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for, this is the goal of Paul's message, for the sake of his name among all the nations. The scope of this good news is truly global. That's the vision that Habakkuk has in chapter 2, verse 14, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Every corner of this earth, this message is going global. Every person, everywhere. The highest aim of global mission, the highest aim of every local church, the highest aim of every single believer and follower of Jesus is that the name of Jesus would be lifted up, that the name of Jesus would be made famous, that God would be glorified. 
That's why we have sent Scotty and Ruth to the Philippines to plant a church amongst marginalized people to lift up the name of Jesus. That's why we continue to support them with our prayers and our finances. Because this is the agenda of the good news, that it would go to the ends of the earth. And this good news message is for everyone. Irrespective of the country you're born in, the language you speak, the color of your skin, this good news is for every single person on the face of the earth. And in a time, in a moment in history, it seems, where people and countries are hell-bent on erecting walls and, and structures between cultures and languages and nations and races... We need to remember that Jesus is the ultimate wall breaker, that he is the one who brings down the dividing wall of hostility, and he calls us to be a church that is transcultural, that transcends any sense of ethnic division, because our future is that we would be one people gathered around the throne from every tribe, tongue, nation, language. And that future gives us a present imperative to be that type of church. This is good news for all people, everywhere, every time. So the five things we learn about this good news message is this. It's good news, not good advice. Secondly, it's divine revelation, not human in, in invention. Thirdly, it's about Jesus before it's about you. Fourthly, it leads to the obedience of faith and not loose living. And finally, it is the goal of this is that God would be glorified among all the nations. Now, I realize you could probably preach a whole sermon series just on those few phrases there. But I want to close with this this morning. As I uh, prepare for a sermon series, what I like to do to preach this message to my own heart before I get up and preach it to you is I like to journal my way through this book. And so I've, I've done Romans 1 to 7 twice in the last couple of months and prayerfully journaled and read and asked God to apply these truths to my own heart. And for the second time round, I was reading Romans 1, 1 to 7. And as I was reading it, these verses grabbed me. And I, I just want to close with this this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. To those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Who are loved by God and called to be saints. I don't know about you, but as I read that, that phrase yanked my arm and drew my attention in. It's easy to skip past those identity statements as just things that Paul's saying as he introduces, yeah, you guys and you guys and God loves you and you're saying, but let's just pause for a second and let those words linger over us, those who are loved by God. That's a staggering phrase that the God of the universe would set his affection upon us. And that is only possible in the good news that Paul preaches for us. That God loves us. Who are you that God would love you? Like, does God even know who you are? There are 7.7 billion people on the face of the planet right now. 7.7 billion, and you are one of 7.7 billion. Does God even know you, let alone love you? course he does. The love of God is erupting and overflowing for his people. It says that it is poured out and lavished upon us. God loves you. And if you miss anything of what I've said this morning about how amazing Romans is, please hear this. 
Do not leave these doors without knowing that truth, that God loves you, that in Christ, he no longer sees your sin and your mess and your brokenness, but he sees the righteousness of his son that clothes you and covers you and he loves you. He loves you. That's a staggering truth for us to enjoy. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced that. You don't know what it is to be loved by God. We would love nothing more to help you discover that. That's why we believe Jesus has called us to be his church here in our city to introduce people to the extravagant, reckless, overwhelming love of God. And so if that's you, please journey with us. Help us introduce you to the God who loves you more than you could possibly hope to comprehend. One of the ways, church, we're going to respond to the love of God this morning is by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to do this together. We normally have our stations around the room set up on the barrels, but this morning we're going to do it differently. And so if you love Jesus, if you believe in this good news message this morning, I'm going to invite you to, to take your, your little cup there and just prepare it by peeling the, the plastic seals off the top there and, and get the elements ready. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning, we celebrate this meal together as an expression of the unity that we have in Christ, that we are one. And so if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus, then please, you're under no obligation to participate in this. We don't want you to participate outwardly in something that you don't believe inwardly. But for those of you who love Jesus, this meal is a reminder that we are brought together, that we are united, that we are one. And Paul's hope for the book of Romans is that the good news would draw together a fractured church. He says this later in 1 Corinthians 10. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This meal for us is a reminder that Jesus has made us family. That there is one church, that there is one body, that there is one bride. That we experience unity. And so we're going to celebrate this together this morning as a declaration that in Christ we are one. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So friends, together as an expression of our unity, we're going to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done. And so take this bread, this wafer, a symbol of the body of Jesus that was broken for you. Eat and be thankful.
and the grape juice, symbolizing the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross to wash us clean. Drink and be thankful. Father God, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for Jesus who has died in our place and for our sin to reconcile us back to you, that we get to experience relationship with you again. God, we thank you that you call us together to be your people, that we are reconciled to one another, that the cross undoes the curse of Eden that fractures the relationships of humanity. But we want to be your church, your people, who live the reality of what it means to be family. We thank you for this reminder. We pray that you would stir in our hearts a deeper affection for Jesus. And we ask it in his strong and powerful name. And everyone said, Amen.